I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode number 211 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Susan Wilson, Anthony King, Ruby Moon, Jenny and Tom, Alison Smith, Caitlin O'Gara, Amy Valencia, Katie C. Wynn, Paula Turkelson, Crystal and Heather Perez, Natalie Cochran, Brianna, Luscious Miss Lulu and Louise Harvey. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Canal. Canal was released in 2014. It has 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. David and his family move into a period house by a canal and dismiss rumours of the place being haunted. David starts having nightmarish visions when he suspects his wife is cheating and he begins to descend into madness. I feel like that particular synopsis is very oversimplified. So to give you kind of a more well-rounded idea of the story. Yes, David and his family move into a period house by a canal. So there's him and his wife and his little boy and they are living a normal, happy life. And David is an archivist and he receives these old videos to work through and the videos demonstrate that there was a murder in his house many years previously in the early 1900s and in this murder the husband had killed his wife because she was cheating right so that's the kind of premise of the story you learn that very early on and this film was not one that I was aware of I don't know where I saw it maybe on a list of like underrated horror films it kind of simultaneously has like both the ring and sinister vibes so it has the ring vibes in that you get a lot of shots of you know creepy images that seem to be really old from really old film the images of the murder from the 1900s it's on this really old film reel and it's quite spooky in the way that it's shot and you have these shots of like operations and dead bodies and all this weird shit that is very reminiscent of the actual video in the ring and in terms of sinister you end up in a very similar situation where uh, David is an archivist but he also takes photographs and films and by doing this he starts to uncover the supernatural mysteries of this house by the canal and this film had an absolutely stupendous line in it and I try to stay away from taking direct quotes from films as often as possible, but this was brilliant. And it was said to uh, to David by a police officer, and it was, people always suspect the husband. And you know why that is? Because it's always the husband. Every fucking time. 
And I thoroughly enjoyed that line. It brought me great joy and I thought it was just a lovely piece of writing, even though it's ridiculously obvious as a thing to say. But I enjoyed it because it was referencing the fact that actually in a lot of cases of murder and disappearing women, etc., it's often the spouse that has done it. This is a pretty low-budget horror film, and I think it did really well for a low-budget horror. The soundscape really gave me the heebie-jeebies. It was clever, it was used well, the music was really atmospheric and tonal, and it was just these, like, noises of dread that would build up, and it, it, you know, it freaked me out, genuinely. Because of time restraints, I often watch these horror films during the day, And this was one of those ones that I watched during the day and it still made me feel a bit freaked out. It made me feel like like I had a little bit of heebie-jeebies going on. I think it also, as a a film, it didn't try and overstretch itself in terms of the budget and CGI. It's small budget. They didn't go crazy with the effects. They didn't try and put terrible CGI in there. Actually, the effects are quite minimal. And I think that really works for this film. And I think it really works for most films. If you leave a lot of the horror up to the audience's imagination, what you can create in your head is often more powerful than what can be shown on screen. And there's lots of moments in this film of really high tension. There was a moment with the main character in a hideous public toilet. I mean, the the public toilet is absolutely horrendous and it kind of gave me train spotting vibes you know that infamous scene from train spotting but anyway the 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 toilets were horrendous the main character is in the toilets and this really scary scene unfolds and there is a demon voice that is used in this film that I could take some serious notes from because it scared me and it was understated and cleverly done And I found it very difficult and it scared me, okay? And I think those public toilets were the scariest thing about this film because they were so grim and hideous. But to be really honest, I I think I was disappointed with this film in the wind-up. I had high hopes for it. I wanted to kind of champion it because it is an Irish-made film. But I thought it was really predictable. Like, I kind of had figured out what was happening within the first half an hour and then actually it never deviated away from that by the end I was like but I I knew that was happening why is there no why is nothing that I didn't know was going to happen happening and I really felt like this film had the scope to be more adventurous and I did think the ending didn't quite know what it wanted to be by about halfway through I felt like I was just watching another rendition of the Amityville horror and guess what it's been done over and over again We don't need to see any more reimaginings of the Amityville horror. We don't need to see it. And I think, you know, the majority of you listening, if you if you watch a lot of horror films based on what I've said so far, you could you'd probably be able to make a fair guess at the entire plot of this movie and probably get 99 percent of it right. But I'm also still I'm still quite mindful of not giving away lots of spoilers for this. And I also really didn't like the acting in this film and this seems to be an unpopular opinion because I went and looked at the reviews for this movie after I'd watched it and it seems that the reviews were quite resoundingly positive about the acting in this film but I just didn't I didn't like it I didn't I didn't find the main character believable I didn't find his descent into madness whether paranormal or otherwise believable I thought it was too understated And I wasn't a big fan of it. And I I didn't really understand as well. And this is very, 
a very picky thing to say, but I didn't really understand where it was set. So his wife, I think, was Dutch and he was English, but their child had a really strong Dublin accent, as did the babysitter. She also had a really strong Dublin accent, but the police were English. And I, and I, I really bothered me. It, re- it really bothered me. My lack of understanding of where this film was set, I found really stressful. You know, I'm a big fan of a clear-cut context when it's necessary. If it's ambiguous because it adds to the story, brilliant. But, you know, give me give me a knowledge of where this story is taking place and when, and then I'll be on your side. Make it ambiguous with everybody having different accents that don't all quite piece together. And I'm, and I'm going to be questioning things. And I'm going to get stuck on that the whole way through the film. And that's what happened. All I could focus on was everybody's different accents. And look, here's the thing. I think it's decent for the budget. And like I said, there are good scary moments in it. It's got good vibes. But don't expect to be blown away by this film. I am going to give it three stars. I can already hear people rolling their eyes. I can hear you're rolling your eyes so hard that I can hear it. So that's Canal 2014, three stars. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And our story this week. So you will have seen by the title of this episode that our story today is about the Whaley House. There will be a YouTube vlog to go with this story. So when I was in America and I visited all these places, like I visited Alcatraz, I visited the Whaley House, I filmed these locations and my experiences at these locations. And those vlogs are on YouTube. So the Whaley vlog will be out a little bit later on this week and you can find the link to subscribe or to find the YouTube channel in the description of this video. I'd love to see you over there watching the video if you feel so inclined. So let's get straight into it. There are some houses that are talked about in the paranormal community that I assume are overhyped and frankly don't provide the paranormal evidence that it would seem they should. There are places like the Waverly Hills Sanatorium that are frequently talked about but that I'm still fascinated by. The house that we are going to talk about falls into the first category for me. Or at least it used to fall into the first category for me until I physically went and experienced it for myself. I don't lie when I'm telling stories and I don't make things up. I may take some poetic license now and then to make a story flow better and I will generally construct a narrative around events that have taken place 
but I don't make things up, especially if I'm talking about my own experiences. I also don't exaggerate my own experiences, which are admittedly few and far between. Something about the Whaley House genuinely frightened me, and it is a place that I desperately want to go back to. But first, the history. The history of San Diego is rich and diverse, dating back thousands of years before the arrival of European explorers. We're going to keep this relatively brief, but San Diego is an interesting city. Its history begins with the indigenous people who inhabited the region for thousands of years before European contact. The Kumeyaay people were the primary Native American inhabitants in the area, living in small villages and practicing agriculture, hunting and gathering. In 1542, Spanish explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo became the first European to set foot in what is now San Diego. However, it wasn't until 1769 that Spanish missionaries and settlers, led by Father Junipero Serra and Jasper de Portola, established the Mission San Diego, making the birth of the city. The mission served as the nucleus for Spanish colonization in California. After Mexico gained independence from Spain in 1821, San Diego became a part of Mexican California. During this period, the mission system was secularized and land grants were distributed to Mexican citizens. In 1846, during the Mexican-American War, US forces under Commodore Robert F. Stockton captured San Diego without much resistance. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 officially ended the war and transferred California, including San Diego, to the United States. San Diego's early American period was marked by its role as a military outpost and supply centre for the US Army during the 1850s and 1860s. In 1867, San Diego was incorporated as a city. The late 19th century saw the growth of San Diego's economy, primarily driven by agriculture, fishing and shipping. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1885 further facilitated trade and development in the region. The early 20th century brought a significant military presence to San Diego with the establishment of naval bases, including the Naval Training Centre and Naval Air Station North Island. This contributed to the city's economy and played a crucial role during both world wars. After World War II, San Diego experienced significant growth and development. The city's pleasant climate and natural beauty attracted tourists and military personnel, leading to the expansion of the tourism industry, housing developments and the growth of the University of California. San Diego's proximity to the US-Mexico border has made it a diverse and culturally rich city, with a significant Hispanic influence. It is also home to a growing Asian and Pacific Islander population, Today, San Diego is known for its vibrant economy, diverse population, world-class universities, research institutions and a thriving biotechnology and healthcare sector. It remains a hub for the US Navy and is celebrated for its tourism, beaches and cultural attractions, including the San Diego Zoo, Balboa Park and numerous museums. San Diego's history is a testament to its resilience adaptation and transformation over the centuries, from its indigenous roots to its present-day status as a dynamic and cosmopolitan American city. For many listeners, the story of the birth of San Diego will be well known to them, and our story today centres on the old town of San Diego, 
And the old town is beautiful. It is vibrant and colourful, with the sounds of music and laughter in the air as tourists traipse around cowboy-themed bars and restaurants with mariachi bands on the balconies. But among all the vibrancy and light, there are always hidden pockets of quiet darkness. El Campo Santo began its life as a graveyard in 1849, but it wasn't just a graveyard. It was also the site of local executions. 477 people were buried there. And the grave markers often tell the stories of the people that were buried there, from children to old people. People of all colours and creeds made El Campo Santo their everlasting resting place. Of course, as the city grew, roads and buildings were built over the graves and, like I said, it was not just that the site was a graveyard. It was also a spot for executions and one execution in particular forms the beginning of our story. The crowd seemed to move as one, inhaling and exhaling as one monstrous entity. No one could quite believe that it was actually happening, but the excitement was palpable. Vendors passed through the crowd selling freshly made lemonade to try and combat the harsh heat of the day. Today was the day, the execution of Yankee Jim Robinson. The case had proven to be sensational and the city of San Diego was invested. The story had spread like wildfire. Yankee Jim Robinson had laughed in the face of death. When the verdict was read out, he had bellowed with laughter. What sort of man would do that? What sort of man would have no fear of impending doom and even find it laughable? Except as with all stories that spread like wildfire, that wasn't the whole truth. Yankee Jim Robinson had indeed laughed when he was sentenced to death, but not because he was some devil-may-care hardened criminal. It was because he thought it was a joke. Jim and two accomplices had stolen a rowing boat. That was it. That was their big crime. He was tried for grand larceny and found guilty by a jury of his peers. A jury that contained the two men that owned the boat. And that was the sum total of what was stolen, a rowing boat. And yet, Yankee Jim Robinson was charged with grand larceny. When he was sentenced to death, Yankee Jim Robinson laughed aloud, believing this was a joke. There was no way he could be sentenced to death for stealing a small rowing boat. The shock in the courtroom was palpable. And Yankee Jim was still laughing when he was escorted to the jail. Despite the suggestion of his moniker, James Robinson was a French-Canadian He had come to San Diego to find his fortune and fell on hard times. While he sat in his jail cell, he was visited by two priests who begged him to repent his sins and save his immortal soul, but still Yankee Jim laughed and refused. He simply couldn't and wouldn't believe that he would hang. The next morning, he was wheeled to El Campo Santo and he finally realised that this was actually going to happen. 
He could see the crowd waiting to watch his death. He could see the noose waiting for his neck. He was about to die. He started to panic. Tears welled in his eyes and he began to shake. James Robinson was a big man. He was six foot four and he had garnered a reputation in the town for being tough as nails. But he wasn't ready to die. A strange hush descended over the crowd as the cart rolled up. Those closest to him could see James shaking and taking deep, ragged breaths. James Robinson, is there anything you would like to say? He looked at the officer who had spoken, dumbfounded. This was really happening. He wanted to grab the officer by the shoulders and shake him and ask him if he knew what he was doing was wrong. Instead, a strangled sob escaped from his throat. I am a good man. I have given piles of gold to help poor men. And with that, he was forced to stand on the mule cart as the noose was placed around his neck. With a crack of a whip, the mules took off and James Robinson flailed and floundered trying to stay on his feet but he fell. The fall did not break his neck. He was slowly choked with his boots grazing the sand, watched by the upturned faces of the townspeople. James Robinson was hanged because he and two other men had stolen a rowboat in the San Diego Bay. In 1852, this larger-than-life character was reduced to a quivering wreck. And then to nothing. And standing in that crowd watching the execution of Yankee Jim Robinson was a man named Thomas Whaley, who would go on to build a house on that very spot three years later. It's hard for us to imagine building a house in the spot where you stood three years earlier to watch a man being hanged for a relatively small crime. But in those days, public executions were a semi-regular occurrence and I doubt that Thomas Whaley gave Yankee Jim Robinson much thought when he was building the house. He vowed on building the house that my new house when completed will be the handsomest, most comfortable and convenient place in town or within 150 miles of here. It is now the oldest brick structure in Southern California and is certainly a notable and beautiful building in San Diego's old town. On August the 22nd, 1857, Thomas Whaley and his wife, Anna Eloise Delaney, moved into the Whaley House. The Whaley House had many iterations in its lifetime and at one point it housed Whaley's General Store and at another point San Diego County's second courthouse and housed the first communal theatre in San Diego. It's safe to say that the Whaley House saw countless visitors and colourful characters on a daily basis. But it also, and perhaps most importantly, served as the family home for Thomas, Anna and eventually their six children. By 1858, Thomas and Anna Whaley had produced three children, Francis Hinton, Thomas Jr and Anna Amelia. Later in life, the Whaleys welcomed three more children, George Hayes Ringgold, Violet Eloise and Corinne Lillian. Tragedy struck the Whaley family soon after they moved into the house, when their little boy Thomas, who was only 18 months old at the time, 
died of scarlet fever in the home. And it wasn't the end of the terrible tragedy for the family. A few months after the tragic loss of their beloved baby, a fire ripped through the general store in the home in a case of arson. Distraught, Thomas and Anna packed up their children and left to move to San Francisco. In 1868, an earthquake rocked San Francisco and once again the Whaley family, now with three more children, returned to Old Town San Diego to live in the Whaley house. By the 1870s, merchants were beginning to move out of the Old Town and into the Gaslamp quarter of the city, and the Old Town became eerily quiet. In 1871, Thomas Whaley was away on a business trip, and a group of armed men stormed the Whaley house holding Anna Whaley at gunpoint and seizing the courthouse records from their home. It is safe to say that the Whaley family had some difficult years, and there are those who claim that the Whaleys were cursed or they were plagued by tragedy. And yes, they experienced tragic events, but for many families in that era, losing children was commonplace. The earthquake in San Francisco impacted tens of thousands arson attacks happen and there were always going to be tensions when you hold official court documents in your home. There was an event that happened in the Whaley home, however, that rocked the family to its core. Violet Whaley married a man named George Bertolacci. For most people nowadays, it's strange to imagine not really knowing your future husband before the wedding day. But in 1882, it was common to be married to a man who was a virtual stranger. Violet and her sister, Anna Amelia, were both married on the 5th of January 1882. And as soon as Violet was married, George Bertolacci revealed his true self to Violet. He was a con artist and a criminal. He was a violent and abusive man and had only married Violet in the hope of gaining access to some of the Whaley family money. Violet and George were divorced and it brought shame on the family in the local area. Violet was distraught, completely devastated and she had suffered previously with what was known then as melancholia but is known now as depression. Violet took her own life on August the 19th, 1885. She took her father's gun and shot herself in the chest in an outhouse. Thomas Whaley carried his daughter into the house where she died in his arms. She was 22 years old. Her suicide note read, Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. Thomas Whaley built a single-storey home for his family in downtown San Diego and the Whaley house stood vacant for two decades. In 1909, Francis Whaley, now an adult, took over the restoration of his once-family home and turned it into a tourist attraction and the remaining Whaley family members returned to the home. By this time, Thomas Whaley had died. Corinne Whaley continued to live in the house until her death in 1953. In all, baby Thomas Whaley, Violet, Anna Amelia, Francis, George and Corinne all died in that house. And there is, of course, the belief that they never left. We could assume that the hauntings of the Whaley house only began after the deaths of the Whaley family, but this is not actually true. 
The Whaley family were plagued by paranormal activity throughout their time living in that house. The whole family regularly heard the steady thump, thump of heavy footsteps, the sound of a big man in boots trudging through their house. Every now and then the family would awake to find fresh boot prints on the floors throughout their house. Boot prints that were much larger than any occupant of the home and boot prints that never suggested that anyone had broken in. Not only this, but throughout their lifetimes, the Whaley family were assailed by eerie moans and wails that would echo through the home. Thomas Whaley had always assumed that the noises, the footsteps and the footprints belonged to the soul of Yankee Jim Robinson, a man who he had watched executed for a minor crime on that very plot of land several years before. The paranormal happenings plagued the Whaley family until they no longer resided in the home in 1953. Of course, as the house now operates as a tourist attraction, opening day and sometimes night, there are numerous accounts of strange and unusual happenings in the historic building. And I also had some strange experiences when I visited there in April of this year, but more on that later. The woman was pale and casting furtive glances back at the house. She sat on the wall outside, flanked by her husband on one side and teenage son on the other. She had one hand on her chest and seemed to be trying to regulate her breathing. Her husband had a protective hand on her back and every so often glared back at the house. From the little museum shop, Julie was watching. Sarah was bustling around the shop, fixing odds and ends and sweeping around the floors. What is it this time? Sarah asked Julie dismissively. I don't know, but judging by the state she's in, I would imagine that it was a full-bodied apparition. Anyway, their Uber has just pulled up, so she'll be fine after some sugar and maybe a stiff drink. Does it really happen that often? I mean, do you really believe it's true? Julie laughed. I'm being serious, Julie. Are the stories true? Of course they were true. Julie had seen it firsthand, and she had seen the effect that it had on people. Visitors streamed in and out of the house every day and not all of them had experiences. Some felt chills or heard knocks and footsteps and a small few saw apparitions. It happened all the time and it had happened to Julie. She didn't always work in the little museum and she had spent hours of her life in that house giving tours to the public. The first time she felt a cold spot she dismissed it. Her logical brain had told her that she must have unwittingly walked into a breeze or a draft, but this was San Diego, and the first time it had happened, it was hot. There was no aircon in the building, and when it happened over and over again in different areas of the house, she began to grow suspicious. It was strange that these ice-cold spots of air should appear and disappear. They were often low to the ground flitting around her knees and shins. Strange. The late-night ghost-hunting events were a new thing, and in the years gone by, the house would be locked up every evening. One member of staff would walk around the rooms, ensuring no windows were left open. There were no tourists left straggling behind, and the lights were switched off. Julia was found switching the lights off tricky. She would often think that she saw a person standing in the corner of the room, 
She would switch the light off and her heart would pound in her chest as the looming shadow of a man would stretch out from the corner of the room. Many times she would flick the light back on in a panic, only to see a hat stand or a grandfather clock. The house always seemed to have that effect on her. She was generally a level-headed, logical woman, but this house did something to her. It was on one of these late-night shutdowns that she first heard it. She had turned off the light in the theatre and was making her way towards the stairs when she heard the unmistakable sound of little feet pitter-pattering up the stairs. This slow, steady sound like someone or something was crawling up the stairs. There was a soft giggling and cooing sound, the, the gurgling of a contented baby. She stood transfixed on the top of the stairs. There were no children in the house that day, so no children that could have been left behind. When the sound reached the top of the stairs, there was no baby, and the sound seemed to fade away into nothing. This was what Julie had considered to be her first truly paranormal experience in this house. She had had colleagues who had had experiences, and even on her own tours, she had had members of the public who had experiences too. On one of her first tours, there was a little girl of about five or six years old who was adorable and full of joy. She held her mother's hand and skipped along through the rooms. Kids weren't always the best behaved on these tours, but she was a dream. Until they got to the parlour. In the parlour, the little girl had been subdued and had broken away from her mother and was standing staring into the corner. She seemed to be chatting and listening and responding. Judy was keeping an eye on her and something about the situation felt strangely unsettling. The little girl finally waved at the empty corner and returned to her mother. Who are you talking to? Her mother had asked. She sounded casual but Julie could detect that there was a slight tension in her voice. It was the man, mommy. There was a man. He was very nice. He had a big coat on and a tall hat. Julie felt strange, but just smiled reassuringly at the mother and they continued with the tour. And in another room, the little girl spotted a picture. That's the man, mummy. The man with the tall hat. He was a very nice man. The man in the picture was the long-deceased Thomas Whaley. Julie shuddered when she remembered that one. Her own mother had been very into the paranormal and had said that children had a greater sense of the spirits or something along those lines. And although Julie didn't personally have any more profound paranormal experiences, while she was giving tours of the house, she had definitely had some strange things happen like odd mists, flickering lights, swinging chandeliers and one time a member of her tour had excitedly approached her and said, I didn't realise the tour had a dog. I love dogs. When Julie had asked them to explain, they told her that they had seen a little Jack Russell terrier running down the corridor. There was no dog in the house. But the Whaley family had owned a little terrier named Dolly Varden. One of her colleagues had finished their shift one night pale and shaking and stammering about seeing a woman. They had been doing the routine of turning the lights off and checking for stragglers when they'd gone to the courtroom. And she was just standing there. She was not in shadows or unclear. She was there. A young woman 
with dark hair and dark eyes wearing a long skirt with gold hoops in her ears and she was weeping. Silent tears streamed down her face and her mouth opened into a silent and horrifying wail. And then she was gone. And her colleague was sure that she had seen the woman before. And it was after that she realised she had seen her before. In pictures. It was Violet Whaley. Julie had eventually finished her stories and finally looked up at Sarah. She had stopped sweeping and was staring at Julie with her mouth slightly open. Oh, sorry, Sarah. Honestly, once I get started, I just can't stop. I really wasn't even a believer before I started working here. She turned back and looked at the house. It was dark now. There were no tours scheduled for tonight and in the upstairs window, a movement caught Julie's eye. The curtain in the window twitched slightly and she could just make out the silhouette of a person standing watching her before they melted away into the darkness of the house. Her breath caught in her throat briefly. But she decided that for Sarah's sake she'd keep this one to herself. Now listen, I know, I've teased my experiences in the Whaley house. So I'm going to tell you. And I had sort of agonised about whether or not to turn it into a story, into a narrative. But they aren't world-changing experiences and I wanted to tell them in my own authentic voice, if that makes sense. Um, The story of Julie is obviously a made-up story. However, all of the experiences are real experiences that people have had in the Whaley house. And there are other experiences too that I'll talk a little bit more about later. But first... What happened when I went to the Whaley house? So when I went to the Whaley house, I, I honestly didn't really expect much. I, I'd i seen the Whaley house on Ghost Adventures. I'd seen it on BuzzFeed Unsolved with Ryan and Shane. And I, and I kind of was like, it's one of those really famously haunted places. I'm pretty sure it was listed as the most haunted house in America. And I thought to myself, well, I'm in San Diego. It's the best place to go to. What more could you want? I'll go... I'll film some vlogs, but was I expecting anything? Not really, to be perfectly honest. I thought I was going to go into the house, be a bit like, okay, yeah, it was fine, it's just an old house museum, the end. Firstly, the house is in the middle of Old Town, so it's like surrounded by vibrancy and life and tourists. And so it's, I don't think even if you did an overnight experience, I don't think it would ever be quiet, first of all. And I didn't do the overnight experience because you need at least two people. Obviously, I was on my own and I understand that's insurance reasons. But I'm pretty sure it was reasonably priced, if I remember correctly. So it's well worth checking out if that sounds like something that you're into. But I would proceed with caution with this house. Now, as you guys know, I'm pretty sceptical. But when I say this house gave me the heebie-jeebies, this house gave me the heebie-jeebies. I went on the latest tour that I could. It was really hot. It was beautiful. The place was buzzing. Went to the Whaley house and went on my tour. The tour starts outside and then they bring you inside and into the courthouse. Didn't feel anything in the courthouse. And I'm not one for having those kind of feelings anyway. But when I went into the grocers, I had the strangest thing happen. And for the longest time, I haven't been able to empathise with a lot of stories that people have written in. 
because I just couldn't understand or couldn't couldn't kind of perceive what it was that they had experienced. And while I was standing listening to parts of the tour, the tour guide was brilliant. It's really worth going on. I would recommend it. I, I had this plunging coldness that was, I don't know how else to describe it, only that it was sort of wrapping itself around my legs. I honestly don't know how else to describe it. I know that probably sounds really silly. So I'm standing there and I was bare-legged because it was really warm. And I was thinking, this is icy cold around my legs and I don't quite know what it is. And I was looking around, I was looking at my legs and I was thinking, right, there's nothing kind of floor level that it could be. There was no air conditioning in the house. I checked, I was looking around the room. I could wander around the room and check There was nothing that I could see that it could have been. It wasn't like a cold breeze or a draft. It was an icy coldness that seemed to be wrapping itself around my legs. And I don't know how else to describe it, only that. Now, I didn't say a single word on this tour. Generally, when I go on ghost tours, I try not to speak very much. I'm not very good at people and I like to do things on my own. Okay, so I said nothing. And I probably should have said something. Maybe other people were experiencing the same thing. Maybe there was some sort of hidden air conditioning. I don't know. But it felt not natural. I don't know how else to describe it. And it was only afterwards when I was researching for this story that I realised two things. First of all, that the Whaley's had a little dog that has been seen around the house. A little terrier that they called Dolly, which is a very cute name for a dog. And they also had a small child Thomas who died at 18 months of scarlet fever and lots of people have reported hearing him and seeing him and feeling his presence around them and I thought to myself no surely not surely not anyway that was in the grocery store and I thought to myself okay well you know it happened we move on to the next room we're going through different rooms The tour guide is telling us different stories about the rooms. The rooms are all beautifully preserved. There are pictures of the family everywhere. It really is like a time capsule and it's really fascinating. We got to the theatre and I was immediately in love with it. It was just such a beautiful little space, little tiny stage that was all set up for full shows. And then they would cram a bazillion people into the room. And it, like, honestly, I just thought, like, what enterprise? I love it. Having a little tiny theatre in your house so that the community could experience theatre. Anyway, I'm sitting in the theatre. We're all sitting in the seats where the audience would have been. And I'm listening to the tour guide. And at this point, she, I think she was talking about Violet. And I had known the story already. I wasn't unaware of the story. So I um, wasn't, you know, wasn't shocked by it. And I can't really describe the feeling that I was overwhelmed with suddenly while sitting in that theatre. I literally had goosebumps on both of my arms and all of the hair raised up on my arms. And nothing that the tour guide was saying was particularly shocking or scary. She wasn't telling a ghost story at the time. She was talking about the history of the theatre and then went on to talk about Violet. And I honestly felt this sense of utter fear and I'm going to say dread and I had this overwhelming sensation that there was something beside me or next or near to me and it wasn't another audience member and I am somebody who suffers from anxiety. I get anxiety regularly. I'm medicated daily to try and manage that 
And one of my anxiety symptoms is that I will feel sick to my stomach when I'm anxious or when I have a buildup of adrenaline in my system. And I've had those feelings a number of times. I remember being in the Ye Old King's Head um, haunted hotel last year and feeling that feeling of like pure sickness in the pit of my stomach, but recognizing it was because it was a very adrenaline fueled night and it wasn't anything more sinister than that. But this was different. This was like goosebumps, hair standing on end, an overwhelming sense that there was something near me that my body could sense. It was like a gut primal feeling, so strange. And again, then it dissipated as almost as quickly as it started. And I was like, God, this is getting a bit weird, this house. It's giving me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. So we're still milling around on the tour and going to various parts of the house. And finally, we get to the parlour. Now, the parlour is where the ghost of Anna Whaley, so Thomas Whaley's wife, is said to be seen quite regularly. And it is where the people have seen also the ghost of Thomas Whaley himself. And it was also where um, I think Thomas Whaley carried Violet into the house after she had shot herself. And while I was standing there, I moved. So I walked in and I moved to the kind of far corner of the room and I was standing with my back to the wall. And from behind me, I would say from inside an interior wall of the house, there was a very clear and definite knock. The people beside me turned to look and I turned to look because I had a backpack on my back and I thought, oh shit, please don't tell me I've knocked something with my backpack. So I turned to look and there was nothing around me that could have hit me. And I remember making eye contact with somebody else in the group that was like, that was weird. (laughs) They didn't say anything. We had that, we exchanged that look between us and I just didn't say anything as I usually don't. And um, when I left the tour, then you are shown the tree where James Robinson was hanged. The outside of the house also gave me the heebie-jeebies. All of it gave me the heebie-jeebies. And I don't normally feel like that. I was on a tour with lots of other people. It wasn't like it was a late night paranormal investigation. Very strange house. And I was sitting outside on the wall. There's a kind of a low wall outside the house. And I was waiting for my Uber to arrive afterwards. And I was thinking to myself, God, that was a very, that was a very strange experience. And this man approached me and he said, hi, I was on the same tour as you. Did you have an, did you feel anything? Did you, did you have any experiences? And I said, no, because I am an idiot and I don't know why. I just don't, I just don't play very well with new people. Okay. And I said, no, I didn't have any experiences. And he was clearly profoundly impacted by the house. And he was saying to me, oh, I just, I really feel emotionally drained from being in there. I felt all these different feelings in different parts of the house that really freaked me out. The house has such a strange vibe. And he was like, I've never felt anything like that in a house before. It's not, you know, this isn't a normal thing for me. And he was really freaked by it. And I was like, oh, So it wasn't just me. And I was allowed to film whatever I wanted as long as I didn't film the tour guide giving their actual speeches and talks in the various rooms, which was fair enough. So I filmed throughout the I filmed throughout the house and I actually haven't looked back at any of my footage from the Whaley house. And I am wondering, I do wonder if I maybe caught even the knock on my footage um, and I'm kind of a little bit excited to find out, but I'm also a little bit scared to look back at the footage. But obviously that all that footage will be on YouTube. 
this week and if if I see anything untoward on it I will obviously let you know and I will try and make sure that I point it out to you and look I don't know maybe it was just because I was primed I was on a ghost tour it was in the evening time I knew this house was supposed to be the most haunted house in America maybe that was why I felt the things that I felt but I just I've never felt those things in any other haunted house before And I will say the only time that I really felt something similar when I was in the theatre part of the house was when all those years ago I was working in the old, what was called a lunatic asylum, but was then a residential care home for people with intellectual disabilities, was when I saw the woman in the window all those years ago. That, That is about what I can compare the feeling to. Which really still gives me the heebie-jeebies now. And like I said, before I went to the Whaley House, I was convinced it was one of those overhyped, well-marketed houses that was basically marketed as haunted to get as many tourists in as possible. And yeah, that might be part of it, but it is a place that I am absolutely determined to go back to. And I'm simultaneously determined to stay the night, but also petrified at the thought of staying the night. So just going back to some of the historical points about the story. Do I believe that the Whaley home was haunted by the ghost of Yankee Jim Robinson? I mean, why not? What an absolutely mind-blowing story to think that this man stole a rowing boat. And yes, stealing is wrong. You shouldn't be stealing things, of course, but it's a rowing boat. And he was tried for grand larceny. And I had to Google what grand larceny meant so that I knew in my head that it was as shocking as I thought it was. And grand larceny is basically stealing something of a sizable value. And it was a rowing boat and he got sentenced to hang for stealing a rowing boat. And and apparently that is part of the story that he genuinely laughed in the courtroom because he was like, this is never, like, obviously it's never going to happen. He thought it was a joke and then refused any sort of religious intervention or whatever because he was like ha 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 like they're never going to hang me like surely somebody's having me on they're just trying to freak me out and it was only when he was basically brought to the gallows that he was like oh my god they're actually going to hang me and it seems like his there was a lot of indignity in his death like his neck didn't break when he was hanged and so he had a he had a, he didn't have a great end to his life you know not that anything to do with execution would be a great end to your life but you know what I mean it wasn't quick and then bizarrely I mean it's not actually bizarre because it still happens today they didn't have a coffin that would fit him and they had to do some maneuvering shall we say some very violent maneuvering to get him into a coffin um so he just didn't have any dignity in his death whatsoever and you can imagine that Thomas Whaley was one of the people he was one of the people that witnessed this execution and then years later he's living in this house he's hearing these thumping big footsteps throughout the house and it was him who said I think this is the ghost of Yankee Jim Robinson this sounds like a really big man in big boots trudging around my house what happened here while people were executed on my land I mean there's also the case that you could make where it was some sort of projection of guilt for watching that execution take place but I really don't think in in that particular time period that people saw executions in the same way. There's a really famous Charles Dickens piece of writing it was like an article that he wrote a commentary on um, going to a public execution in London 
and the writing about it is really fascinating because he talks about how it was just like a massive party crowds and crowds of people like hundreds even thousands of people out on the streets they're drinking all day everyone's pissed the sex workers are all out on the streets people are literally having sex in the streets it's like a big festival waiting to watch people being hanged and he was commenting on it being like this is I mean this has gotten to the point that it is absurd but again it wasn't you know it wasn't terribly long ago and executions public executions were commonplace and people had a very different mentality when it came to those sort of things there are also other ghosts that are alleged to have been cited in the Whaley house so there's an article on mysterious universe that I am referenced for this episode the link is in the description of the video and in that mysterious universe article they talk about the ghost of a little girl with long hair and wearing a long dress has apparently been seen in the dining room and according to the legend she was a friend of the Whaley children who tragically died when she broke her neck on a clothesline it is believed that her name was either Annabelle or Carrie Washburn, although no proof of her existence has ever been found. So I didn't include it in the story because all of the other Whaley house hauntings seem to have a living correspondent. Do you know what I mean? Whereas this one didn't. Also, why are all creepy ghost children called Annabelle? You know what I mean? Are they like really Annabelle or Carrie? Could we not just go with Carrie just to be a little bit original? Just a little bit, little adding something new, adding a bit of spice to the paranormal community. So here's my summation of this. The house freaked me out. I don't know if it was because I was primed to be freaked out. I don't know if it was my imagination. I don't know if I was misinterpreting very natural and human things as supernatural. I, I don't know. But do I want to go back to the Whaley house? Absolutely yes. And if you have been to the Whaley house and felt the same way or had similar experiences let me know and don't forget to check out the youtube vlog all about the whaley house that will be out this week at some point thank you so much for listening to today's episode if you would like to send in your spooky story you can do so by emailing it to real life ghost stories podcast at gmail.com also just to say thank you so much to everybody who voted for real life ghost stories in the listeners choice award for the british podcast awards we did not make it into the shortlist for the top five. However, the top five were, <laughs> they were all pretty amazing podcasts So that have huge followings. So I, I don't feel too hard done by. But thank you so much. So many people messaged me to say that they had voted or shared their voting on social media. And I really appreciate it. It's just a, a lovely thing to do. And it's a really easy way to help the podcast. And I will be looking for your votes again for the Irish Podcast Awards that are coming up a little bit later on in the autumn so thank you so much for listening. If you would like to check out the website, you can do so at reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.